1: Hi, this is Newt. Due to the virus, I'm recording from home. So you may notice a difference in audio quality. On this episode of Newt's World, I am delighted to have a close personal friend and somebody who I really admire a great deal. A brilliant lawyer, somebody who has shown enormous courage in fighting for the conservative cause. Ted Cruz was a law clerk for Chief Justice William Rehnquist in 1996. He went on from there, became a U.S. senator, uh, presidential candidate. But in the process, near 2000, he helped litigate the Supreme Court case of Bush versus Gore after the Florida election recount dispute. He has discussed the importance of the Supreme Court in a brand new book just coming out and very timely, One Vote Away. I can't imagine a more timely conversation, both in terms of the upcoming election and in terms of the president having nominated someone to be on the Supreme Court. So, Senator Cruz, first, let me just say thank you. I know how busy your schedule is, and I am delighted that you would take some time to talk about your new book and about the whole issue of the Supreme Court and where we are today.
4: Well, Newt, thanks for having me on. It's great to be with you, and there's certainly a great deal of happening right now concerning, obviously, the Supreme Court and the vacancy that we're right in the midst of considering.
1: Given everything you do and how busy you are, what led you to decide that writing this book was that important?
4: Well, I think it underscores the enormous stakes of this election. I wrote the book this spring and summer while most of the country was on COVID lockdown, and so I was working from home. And in terms of what is at stake on November 3rd, I don't know that there is anything more important than the U.S. Supreme Court. Before I was in the Senate, I was a Supreme Court litigator. I represented the state of Texas before the Supreme Court. I represented big companies, private companies, and bet the company litigation before the Supreme Court. And the way the book is structured, each chapter focuses on a different constitutional liberty. So there's a chapter on free speech. There's a chapter on religious liberty. There's a chapter on the Second Amendment. There's a chapter on U.S. sovereignty. There's a chapter on democracy and elections and telling the inside story of Bush versus Gore. With all the chapters, what I try to do is really tell war stories from litigating the major landmark cases on each of those issues. And I was blessed to have litigated a lot of the biggest cases on those areas. And so I try to bring the reader inside to understand how the court operates, who are the players, what's going on, what actually led to these major landmark cases. And it's designed also where you don't have to be a lawyer, you don't have to be an expert in any of this, but it's designed to be interesting and accessible and help you really understand what's at stake in this confirmation battle for Judge Barrett and what's at stake for the Supreme Court going forward.
1: In your own experience, when you were there in one of the most important cases in modern times, in the Gore versus Bush showdown, what is your takeaway from that experience, both in terms of the process of systematic litigation going up through the court system to the Supreme Court and also on the issues that were at stake. I remember at the time, it just seemed like it was an enormously contentious moment.
4: So it was, and it was utter chaos. In November of 2000, I was a young lawyer. I was working on the George W. Bush campaign. So I was down in Austin, Texas. That's actually where Heidi and I met. I met my wife on the campaign. She was also down there as part of the campaign staff. And I still remember election night where we were standing out in the street on Congress Avenue at four in the morning with light rain drizzling down where Don Evans, the chairman of the campaign, came out and said, it looks like we're not going to have a decision tonight. It is uncertain. And shortly thereafter, I got on a plane, flew to Tallahassee and was in Tallahassee for the entire recount litigation. And it started with one lawsuit, but it ended up with multiple lawsuits where George W. Bush had won on election night. The count on election night showed that he won, which meant he won the presidency. The whole race had come down to Florida. The Democrats came in with an army of lawyers and brought multiple cases trying to force recount after recount after recount, trying to throw out votes that were favorable to Bush so that Gore would win. And ultimately, the votes were counted a total of four times in Florida, and and every time the votes were counted, Bush won. But the Gore legal team didn't like that. So their view was they were going to keep litigating until they could change the outcome. And the case went twice to the U.S. Supreme Court. The first time at the Supreme Court, we won unanimously. And in fact, the court adopted a theory that was one that I'd come up with, along with two other campaign lawyers, urging the court to vacate the decision of the Florida Supreme Court. In other words, to essentially erase the Florida Supreme Court's decision and send it back after clarifying federal law. That's what the Supreme Court did the first time unanimously. The second time it went back to the court, we ended up prevailing seven to two, that the court concluded that what was happening in Florida violated the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution. But then the court divided five-four, just one vote away, On the remedy and the court ultimately after 36 days of chaos said enough is enough it's over the votes have been counted they've been counted four times every time Bush has won George W. Bush is the winner that ended the matter and gave us a clear winner now the obvious importance of all of that newt this time around is I think the odds are exceedingly high that we're gonna see litigation and maybe not just in one state like we did in Florida I think if Joe Biden loses, he has already explicitly said that he intends to challenge the legitimacy of this election. And I could easily see Biden filing litigation in five different states simultaneously. That's what makes the timing of the confirmation of Judge Barrett so important. What I believe we will do is that the Senate should confirm Judge Barrett before Election Day, so that we have a full complement of nine justices on the court, because otherwise, if there are just eight justices on the court and there is litigation over the election, the court could easily divide 4-4 and a court that is divided 4-4 has no legal authority to decide anything. So we could see weeks or months of chaos and uncertainty and a constitutional crisis. And I think that's really the most compelling reason to act and act swiftly, and I believe that's what the Senate's going to do.
1: Let me carry you back for a minute, because for a lot of folks who weren't there, and a lot of younger people who may have never even thought about it, could you just take a minute and describe what had actually happened in Palm Beach County that led to this whole total mess?
4: Well, sure. And I'll take it even a little bit earlier than that, which is on election night, we're all gathered and everyone's watching the TV to see election results. And initially, the networks all called Florida for Al Gore. And so they said, Al Gore has won the state of Florida. And we were crestfallen because the math was pretty clear that if we lost Florida, it was very hard to get to 270 electoral votes, which is what's needed to win. Amazingly enough, the networks called Florida while the polls were still open people were still voting in the panhandle and the panhandle tends to be the most conservative part of florida but the networks had called it for gore anyway which no doubt had a real effect discouraging some of george w bush's voters from coming out then as time went on and the counting went on in florida they began to realize that what they had said was wrong and so one network after another rescinded the call and said, "Okay, we had called Florida for gore. It turns out we were wrong. It's now too close to call. And we cheered at the campaign, everyone watching that. That went on for several hours. And then late in the evening, the networks reversed their call. And they said, we can now call the winner of Florida is George W. Bush. And with Florida, George W. Bush has won the presidency. And so that was late on the night of election night. When that happened, Al Gore picked up the phone and called Bush and conceded, and he conceded on the phone, and then he was driving to give his concession speech, and his team called him and said, well, wait, the margin may be a little bit closer than we thought, and so Gore called Bush back and retracted his concession, and that was the beginning of no one was sure what was going to happen. The margin was quite close in Florida which triggered an automatic recount under state law. So they'd counted all the votes, but then there was an automatic machine recount after that. The next day, Josh Bolton, who was the policy director, who was my boss on the campaign, he later became the White House chief of staff. Josh asked me, Ted, get on an airplane, fly to Florida, be in Tallahassee. And so I sat down with Ben Ginsberg. Ben was our outside counsel. And I still remember I was 29 years old and I was sitting in a conference room with Ben, we had a yellow pad of paper, and we started assembling our legal team. And it was literally, it was like a field of dreams moment. If you call them, they will come. And so we went through and said, all right, who do we want? And one of the first people I called was my old boss, Mike Carvin. Mike is one of the top Supreme Court litigators in the country. I remember Mike was at a wedding in Seattle. I got him on his cell phone. I said, Mike, we need you here now. He got on a plane. He flew to D.C. His wife met him at the airport with a suitcase of fresh clothes, and he was down in Tallahassee, I don't know, 12, 15 hours later. Another lawyer that I called was a lawyer in private practice by the name of John Roberts. John I'd known for a long time. John was a law clerk for Chief Justice Rehnquist, as was I. I got John on the phone, said, we need you here. He came straight down. And we assembled a team that dealt with an onslaught of litigation. I still remember we had a war room and we had a chart and there were seven different lawsuits pending in different parts of Florida, any one of which could cost the president of the United States. And it was utter and complete chaos. But we had, I think, the finest legal team that has ever been assembled. You couldn't have that many top Republican litigators in the country. Ordinarily, they'd kill each other and the egos would clash. In this instance, everyone was so horrified at watching the Gore team try to steal the election that everyone worked together, and it made a huge difference that we had a Supreme Court with nine justices who could resolve the matter at the end of the day and make sure that the law was followed.
1: As a historian, I'm fascinated. Was any one personality decisive in pulling the team together?
4: So the leader of the entire team was Jim Baker. And Baker is an extraordinary man. He had been the chief of staff. He's run five presidential campaigns. He was the secretary of treasury. He was the secretary of state. And Baker was sort of the leading graybeard for Bush 41, George Herbert Walker Bush. And it was very interesting. The George W. Bush campaign, part of what they were trying to do is run as conservatives and not be as moderate as his father had been. And so actually... 43 in meetings throughout the campaign would mention to people you'll notice who's not here and so Jim Baker had not been involved in the campaign at all because he was seen as one of the more moderate advisors to Bush 41 when the recount started George W called Baker and said we need you and it was an enormous asset because Baker is brilliant he's cunning He is a statesman. He understands the media. He understands law. He understands politics. And so he led the entire team. In terms of assembling the group, it was Ben Ginsburg and me. And my being there was a happy accident. I mean, I was a kid in my late 20s. It just happened that I was the only person who had been on the full-time campaign staff who had been a constitutional litigator and a Supreme Court litigator. That's what my practice had been. And so Secretary Baker at the outset asked me to serve on, we had seven different legal teams that were handling all the different litigation. He asked me to be the one lawyer who served as the conduit and as a member of all seven, in significant part to try to ensure that what was being said in one case was consistent with another. And I'll tell you, Newt, my favorite story from that entire battle was the night that the Supreme Court decision came down. It was about 10 o'clock at night, and I got a call on my cell phone from the clerk of the Supreme Court office. And the clerk said, okay, we have a decision. Do you want us to fax it to you? And so that says something about the timing. We still used fax machines. And so I said, sure. I gave her the fax number. And they faxed the decision over, and I picked up the decision, and I carried it into Jim Baker's office. And you may remember that night. It was a surreal night because the opinion was about 30 pages long, and it was convoluted. And it wasn't clear what it said. And so Baker looks at me and goes, well, what does it say? And so I'm sitting there reading it, trying to read it quickly. He is standing, basically looking over my shoulder in this small office. Simultaneously, the reporters are standing on the steps of the Supreme Court. They're trying to read the opinion, and they can't figure out what it says. So nobody knows what the outcome is. So I'm reading quickly, and after a couple of minutes, I looked at Baker, and I said, it means it's over. It's done. And he looked at me and nodded. And he reached over, he picked up the phone, he called then-Governor Bush at his ranch in Crawford. George W. Bush picked up the phone and Baker said, well, Mr. President, how does it feel? And I just had chills go down my spine. It was a powerful moment. I got to tell you though, the next day, Heidi was laughing and she said, well, it's a good thing you were right. It's a good thing there wasn't some footnote buried in the opinion that you missed and that you gave the right call, but it turned out to be correct. And that was the end of the 36-day recount. And we had an election result and we had a new president.
0: BP added more than $70 billion to the US economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Throughout history, there
1: are clear moments that define our nation's path. And now you can own a piece of that history. I am thrilled to announce the Newt Gingrich Contract with America coin from Legacy Precious Metals. My limited edition, one-ounce silver coin commemorates the historic victory in 1994 when the Republican Party, under my leadership, took control of Congress. The Newt Gingrich Contract with America coin also symbolizes the transformative political platform that led to landmark achievements like the overhaul of the welfare system and the Balanced Budget Act. This holiday season, give the gift of history. The Newt Gingrich Contract with America Coin is more than an investment. It's a tribute to honest government and to America. Available to order right now by calling 866-484-4043. That's 866-484-4043. Or order online at newtgingrichsilvercoin.com. That's what are the other really big five to four decisions that you look at and you think history was changed in effect by one justice
4: well virtually every topic virtually every fundamental right that we can think of it is five four at the court so free speech one of the cases that the left loves to demonize is a case called citizens united Citizens United upheld the right of a nonprofit organization to criticize politicians. In this instance, Citizens United made a movie that was critical of Hillary Clinton. And the Obama administration came in and wanted to fine Citizens United for daring to criticize Hillary Clinton. And the case went to the Supreme Court and 5-4 by just a single vote. The court concluded that you have a First Amendment right to make a movie critical of a politician and that the government can't fine you for doing it. At the oral argument, the Obama Justice Department was asked, Justice Alito explicitly asked the Obama DOJ, under your theory of the case, could the government ban books, make it illegal to publish a book that is critical of a politician? And the Obama Justice Department argued yes, That's what we're arguing. It's a little stunning, Newt, that the decision there was 5-4. And Hillary Clinton explicitly pledged to nominate justices who would overrule Citizens United, and Joe Biden has as well. One issue that's front and center is does the federal government have the ability to muzzle you and to punish you for criticizing politicians? And, I mean, that's our fundamental right of free speech.
1: Well, when you think about it, you also have to wonder why that lawyer answered that way. I mean, I think they were probably an honest answer, but in a sense it guaranteed that it was so radical. In fact, I agree with you that it's it's a little surprising it wasn't like nine zero, given the level of censorship they were suggesting.
4: You are right, although it was the necessary conclusion of their argument, and this reason Justice Alito pressed them is because They were arguing that the government had the power to censor movies. I suppose the lawyer could have fought the hypo. It was the necessary conclusion of their position. I go into a lot of detail about the history of Citizens United, how that happened. But then I also describe the aftermath of Citizens United, where Senate Democrats introduced a constitutional amendment to repeal the free speech protections of the First Amendment and to give... Congress plenary power, which is a fancy legal term for blanket total power to regulate political speech. And every single Senate Democrat voted to repeal the free speech protections of the First Amendment. I led the fight against it in the Senate. And so I go through the battles. Dick Durbin chaired the Constitution subcommittee, the Senate Judiciary Committee, and I was the ranking Republican. There was a time When there were free speech Democrats, and in fact, in past Congresses, when Democrats have tried to amend or repeal the free speech protections of the Bill of Rights, Democrats like Ted Kennedy bellowed, we haven't amended the Bill of Rights in 200 years, and now is no time to start. Well, I'm sorry to tell you, in today's Senate, there are no Ted Kennedy liberals left, not a single Democrat would defend the Bill of Rights and free speech and they believe in power instead. And the same is true with religious liberty, the right we have to worship, to exercise our faith. The same is true with the Second Amendment. The Supreme Court 5-4, the Heller decision, which I helped litigate, I represented 31 states defending the Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms. There were four dissenting justices who argued that the Second Amendment protects no individual right whatsoever, that neither you nor I nor any American has any individual right. And So it wasn't even arguing that some gun control is sometimes okay. Look, reasonable minds can disagree on that. Their position was much more brazen and radical. It was that the Second Amendment is essentially erased from the Bill of Rights and government can make it illegal for you or me or any American to possess any firearm whatsoever. That's a radical position, and we're one vote away from it at the court.
1: Don't you find in that sense that the entire process of governors and county commissioners and mayors basically eliminating the Constitution during the period of shutdown, it's an astonishing repudiation of the core protections of the United States?
4: It really is. And it's a loss. I mean, there was a time, the 60s and 70s and even 80s and 90s, where you had Democrats who were civil libertarians, who actually believed in protecting liberties, religious liberty, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which protects the religious liberty of all of us. That passed the Senate and the House virtually unanimously, virtually every Republican, virtually every Democrat voted for it. Chuck Schumer voted for it, Joe Biden voted for it, was signed into law by Bill Clinton. So it used to be that Republicans, Democrats, we would disagree on, say, marginal tax rates. Okay, fine, we can have an argument about that. But when it came to let's protect the religious liberties of Americans, that was bipartisan. It isn't anymore. And I recount in the book the aftermath of the Supreme Court's decision in the Hobby Lobby case, which was protecting the right of Christian companies, Christian employers, not to be forced to violate their faith and to pay for abortion inducing drugs and others. Hobby Lobby was 5-4. There were four justices that were willing to say we're going to force them to comply. We're going to force the Little Sisters of the Poor, which I talk about at length in the book, a Catholic convent of nuns that the Obama administration was litigating to punish them and force them to pay for abortion-inducing drugs and others. And sadly, Senate Democrats took up legislation to gut RIFRA, to gut the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which had passed in the 1990s virtually unanimously. Every single Senate Democrat voted to gut the legislation because there's not a single one of them, not one, who will defend religious liberty anymore.
1: I mean, it's really an astonishing shift in the whole nature of America, don't you think?
4: It is, and when I was fighting against their efforts to gut RFRA, I gave a speech on the Senate floor and I had behind me a poster with a quote from John F. Kennedy that said, I will not stand with a person who will not protect my religious liberty. And I called out, are are there no John F. Kennedy Democrats left and sadly there are not it shows how radicalized today's Washington Democrats have become that they are the party of Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and AOC but it is stunning this book is really designed where each chapter helps you understand really what's at stake and how close the balance is that if they get one more left-wing justice on the court the rights that we really cherish as Americans can be taken away.
0: BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and Starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.
1: Throughout history, there are clear moments that define our nation's path, and now you can own a piece of that history. I'm thrilled to announce the Newt Gingrich Contract with America coin from Legacy Precious Metals. My limited edition... One ounce silver coin commemorates the historic victory in 1994 when the Republican Party, under my leadership, took control of Congress. The Newt Gingrich Contract with America coin also symbolizes the transformative political platform that led to landmark achievements like the overhaul of the welfare system and the Balanced Budget Act. This holiday season, give the gift of history. The Newt Gingrich Contract with America coin is more than an investment. It's a tribute to honest government and to America. Available to order right now by calling 866-484-4043. That's 866-484-4043. Or order online at com. That's com. It relates directly back to the left's attack on Judge Barrett, which essentially relates to her Catholicism, and at least for some people on the left, whether or not you can be genuinely committed Christian, whether evangelical or Catholic, and be allowed to serve on a court. We've shifted from freedom of religion on the left to anti-religion as the yardstick.
4: nude I think you're exactly right, that today's Democratic Party has a deep animosity and antipathy to people of faith that religion is fine if it's kind of like you know a social membership but it's not fine if you actually believe the stuff now judge barrett's credentials are extraordinary she graduated first in her class from notre dame law school she was a law clerk to justice antonin scalia one of the greatest justices ever to have lived on the court she spent 20 years as a professor at notre dame she's one of the most respected federal appellate judges in the country but i still remember well in the senate judiciary committee the confirmation hearing for her to become a federal appellate judge where we saw democrat after democrat target her for her faith dick durbin asked her if she was a quote orthodox catholic which i'm not quite sure what that's supposed to mean i guess as opposed to a heretic orthodox is an odd modifier there But clearly it was bad. And the moment that really characterized the entire hearing was Senator Dianne Feinstein, who said about Judge Barrett's faith, said, the dogma lives loudly in this one. And dogma was meant to be, I think, a code word. If you actually believe your faith, then you are not fit to serve in public office or as a judge, whether one is a Catholic or an evangelical or perhaps an Orthodox Jew, but whatever your faith, the view of today's Democrats is that is a disqualifier. I think we saw real religious bigotry and bias in Judge Barrett's first confirmation hearing, and sadly I expect we will see more of that in her second hearing. And I would note the text of the Constitution, explicitly prohibits a religious test for public office. So the framers of the Constitution anticipated that you could have this kind of religious bigotry, and they wrote into the Constitution, you can't have a religious test for whether someone should serve. They were right then, and they're right now.
1: You may have been there the day that Kamala Harris actually asked a nominee to be a federal judge about his membership in the Knights of Columbus, which is a very large Catholic benevolent charity. And she was sort of implying that by definition, if you belong to the Knights of Columbus, you couldn't be acceptable as a federal judge. And I just thought it was remarkable.
4: I do remember that well. And you're right that there were several Senate Democrats who took the position that if you had been involved in the Knights of Columbus, that was a disqualifying aspect. You think back to JFK. The Democratic Party, there used to be people of faith that were welcomed, that were embraced. There were pro life Democrats. There were Democrats who believed in strong national defense and what were called Scoop Jackson Democrats. This is not your father's Democratic Party. Today's Democratic Party, anyone who is conservative or moderate or anything other than far left is driven out. We're seeing them primarily from the socialist and radical left anyone who doesn't agree with them, the head of the DNC, the Democratic National Committee, said there is no place for anyone pro-life in the Democratic Party. And I can imagine an awful lot of folks, particularly up and down the Midwest, observant Catholics, who were John F. Kennedy Democrats who are being told, get the hell out of our party. I can tell you on the Republican side, we certainly welcome them with open arms. And I think you're seeing a lot of people Who had been FDR Democrats and JFK Democrats who are becoming Republicans because the Democratic Party has been so radicalized on so many issues?
1: Let me ask you one other last big question that's very relevant right now. There's been a great deal of, I think, mischaracterization of whether or not you can nominate and confirm a justice in an election year. I know you're an expert in this and you've studied it. Could you just comment for a minute about the whole history? of people being nominated to the Supreme Court and what made 2016 different than 2020, but in the context of actual precedent?
4: I'm happy to, and they're very different circumstances. First of all, the question of what to do with a Supreme Court vacancy during a presidential election year is not a new question it turns out that it's come up frequently in the history of our country it has come up a total of 29 times so 29 times presidents have had vacancies during presidential elections years on the supreme court and we know what presidents do presidents have nominated someone to fill that vacancy all 29 times 100 percent of the time so whether one is a democrat or republican It is absolutely clear that presidents, when faced with a vacancy in a presidential election year, put forth a nominee. Now, what does the Senate do with it? And again, here, the history and precedent is clear. Nineteen of those times, the president and the Senate have been of the same party. Of those 19, the Senate has confirmed 17 of those justices. So the precedent is if the president and senator of the same party... The nominee is confirmed, assuming they're qualified. On the other hand, 10 of those instances, the president and the Senate have been of a different party. That happened in 2016 when Barack Obama nominated Merrick Garland and the Senate was in Republican control. Of those 10 times when the president and Senate have been of different parties, the Senate has confirmed two of those nominees. And so the overwhelming history and precedent is that the Senate generally does not confirm a nominee to the Supreme Court for a vacancy that happened in a presidential election year if they are of different parties. And Newt, that distinction is far more than just a partisan matter. The reason that that history and precedent makes sense, especially now, is that the kind of judge or justice that will be nominated or confirmed has become a central issue in elections. It was a major issue between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton as to the kinds of justices they would confirm. My new book, One Vote Away, the book opens with the day in February of 2016 when Justice Scalia passed away. And I was in South Carolina. I was actually with my debate prep team. We had a debate that evening. We were in the middle of the presidential primaries, and we had the South Carolina debate that evening. And I got a phone call from the sheriff in West Texas who had found Scalia's body. And this was before the news was public. The sheriff called both me and called John Cornyn, the other senator from Texas, to let us know Justice Scalia was dead. So we spent a couple of hours actually brainstorming about, okay, what are we going to do? And I put out a statement within minutes of the news breaking publicly. I put out a statement then saying under no circumstances should the Senate take up any nominee, instead, the American people should decide. Why? Because we had a Republican majority in the Senate that the American people had elected in 2014. They went on to reelect in 2016 and to grow the Republican majority in 2018. And we had promised the voters that we would stop liberal judicial activists from going to the bench and that we would fight to confirm principled constitutionalists. That's what Donald Trump promised to do. It was the biggest reason I voted for Trump over Hillary Clinton is because he promised to nominate justices in the mold of Scalia and Thomas. And it was, I think, a major reason he won. And so when the president nominated Judge Barrett, he was honoring his promise to the American people. He was keeping his word. And when the Senate Republicans confirmed Judge Barrett, we are likewise honoring our promise to the voters and keeping our word.
1: I think that puts it in exactly the right framework. Listen, I want to thank you for taking this kind of time because I know how amazingly busy your schedule is. I want to encourage everybody who's listening to this, if you go to our show page, there will be a link so you can get a copy of Senator Cruz's brand new book, One Vote Away. I think you'll find fascinating. As you could tell just from the personal eyewitness stories that Senator Cruz had here, he's been in a number of amazing rooms. He writes about them He's a remarkably articulate and courageous guy and has an enormous future in helping shape America. So thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule.
4: Thank you, Newt, my friend, and thank you every day for the powerful voice for liberty and careful thought and analysis and truth that you provide each and every day.
1: Thank you to my guest, Senator Ted Cruz. You can access his new book, One Vote Away, on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Media. Our executive producer is Debbie Myers. Our producer is Dorn Sloan. And our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. Please email me with your questions at gingrich360.com slash questions. I'll answer a selection of questions in future episodes. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. On the next episode of Newt's World, as part of our Election 2020 series, I'll give you my take on the first presidential debate between President Donald Trump and Vice President Joe Biden. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World.